We were told that on Christmas Eve we would have the largest audience that had ever listened to a human voice. And the only instructions that we got from NASA was do something appropriate. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Wow. What do you think? You know who I reckon said that? <laughs> who said it? Frank! Frank! Frank Borman <laughs> on Apollo 8. Frank! Did that sound like Pat Butcher? You did sound a bit like, well, no, actually, you didn't sound like... Frank! That's better. It's a bit better, isn't it? There you've got it. You've nailed it now. Oh, man, Apollo 8. Good days, Matt. Because there's so much to talk about. And this is our Christmas special, everyone. Matt, you know what? Not only would I like to wish you... A very Merry Christmas. But can I wish Merry Christmas to our listeners? You can mi- wish Merry Christmas to all our listeners. Go, do it. Right, all, all three of you, season's greetings. Happy Christmas thing, Matt, We're going to have to learn Happy Christmas in lots of languages. Because as you know, we're multinational. We're international. We're international. Check the statistics. Oh, we don't like to talk about it. <sighs> do you think we still got the listener? We've got still got one listener in North Korea. I think so, yeah. We're not, I think we've got several listeners in North Korea. Whether you're secular or religious, season's greetings. doesn't all have to be about religion, Matthew. You know what? I think it should just be about spending time with the ones you love over the green triangles yeah. in the Quality Street tin. Yeah. And My personal fave. So if you want to send in... Um, Matt will be putting up our office address. Uh, please send them in. Um, well, guys, happy Christmas. And what a week. Um, because, you know, everyone's winding down now for Christmas. Well, you know what, Matt? It's been a long time since I've thrown a really exciting number and a bunch of letters at you. Yeah. How about the NGC 2264? The NGC. What does that mean to you? That means the Christmas tree cluster to me. That's what that means. What about what about the cone nebula? The cone nebula. Have you heard of that? Yeah, yeah. I've heard of the cone nebula. Discovered by William Herschel on Boxing Day, seventeen eighty-five. It's a good year, that vintage year. Yeah. So yeah, Herschel, famous British astronomer. Matt, have you ever heard of the snowflake cluster? Uh, do you know what? Not only have I heard of all of these, Jamie, I have taken photo. Oh. I've taken photos of them outside, outside of my in my garden. I've gone out in my garden on Christmas Day a few years ago and taken a picture of NGC two two six four, the Christmas tree cluster. Because I just thought it's just so beautiful. If you look up at Orion, and then you yeah. go, you turn left essentially at Orion, and yeah, it's left. kind of the midpoint between Procyon and Betelgeuse. You will yes. notice a little tiny cluster there, it, uh, and in, in binoculars you can you can just about see the Christmas tree cluster and the shape of a Christmas tree, and it, it really genuinely does look like a Christmas tree where where the um, the nebulosity has kind of caused the, the Christmas yeah, yeah yeah has caused the Christmas Matt, tree. Is it shape. true that all snowflakes are individual? Yeah. A bit like it's a bit like uh, every single pack of cards is individual. Once you've shuffled them, that it'll be totally unique. That pack, that that set of cards will won't have ever existed before. Really? Yeah, really. 
Mm, I'm not sure about that one. I, I'm sure that the probability is that someone shuffled a pack of cards the same as the other person. One other probability is that they ha- they haven't, but that doesn't mean that that hasn't happened. Oh, oh. This is already an interesting episode, Matt. <laughs> 52 factorial or something like that. There we go. Just multiply 52 by 51, multiply it by 50, multiply it by 49, and then you get the num- the chance that, that that pack of cards has been... Quick maths! So go out, yeah, go out on Christmas Day and try and look for the Christmas tree nebula with in, with with a nice pair of binoculars or a telescope. It's 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 what a very good thing to do. What about the fox fur nebula? Well, the fox fur nebula, you'll never see that with a naked eye. I'm hoping it's faux fur, Matthew. Yeah, well, yes, it's, 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 if it was made from fox foxes, being that it's a few light years across, that's an awful lot that of would, foxes. That would be that would be a good fact, wouldn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it's it's de- it just looks a little bit like fox fur if you view it in a certain way, but not in a way. With, that you could have done with the naked eye so all of these things have kind of been made up since then but yeah the cone nebula um is like a, it looks like a cone looks genuinely looks like a road traffic cone made out of oh. a huge pillar of dust cone, i expect i i thought you meant ice cream cone well i suppose it is like an ice cream cone except the other way up upside down but but there there is no up or but down hey, in Matt, space there is no, James, Jamie, to say, there is no up or down in space there is so no up or down. you can you can have it as an ice cream cone or as a uh, whatever you want just have it as whatever you want answers on a postcard how far away do you think the cone nebula is in light years oh i don't know uh 4.653 no 2600 oh, i was close as well you were absolutely nowhere near <laughs> <laughs> 2,600 try- light years away. But of course that- I knew that. I'm just trying to... Uh, what yeah. I don't want to do is intimidate our listeners. No, true. And with, my, with my knowledge. Now, uh, being that Star Wars came out this week, I thought we should talk about let's Parsecs. Not talk, let's not talk... <laughs> no, let's not talk about that. See, we're totally... I cannot... Still I, upset. I genuinely... Still upset. Are you... Ge- I just can't... Listeners... Just so you know, I thought that the latest Star Wars was one of the best films I've ever seen. And it's certainly, certainly for me, up there with the greatest of the Star Wars films. It's up there with Empire, man. I'm glad you said for you. Oh, my God. Up there with Empire. Yeah, totally. It totally, totally is, Jamie. You know what you can do, Matt? You can... (laughs) (laughs) I mean, seriously... You can't be a Star Wars fan if that's what you think. You probably think the Jar Jar Binks films are good. No, no, utter disgrace. Jamie, Up Jamie there with Empire. Just remember I'm that, uh, Jamie. Just remember, Brian Blessed was uh, was Boss Nass, and that we shouldn't talk ill of those films. But uh, uh, but no, they are yeah. dreadful. They are they are truly dreadful. Uh, however, I genuinely thought it's well, inspired. I'm, I'm, I was really inspired totally, coming out of the, out of the I'm cinema. Ha- I'm happy that you enjoyed it, and you know what? Like all art, including movies. It's good that it divides people. Unfortunately, I'm right. Um, but well, no, okay. no, no, no. Listeners, if you remember a few weeks ago, Jamie uh, said he liked Prometheus, so his opinion is worthless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So well, we're but, even but, now. Yeah, okay, fair we're enough. We're even. Fair enough. I think most listeners will on. agree. Anyway, <laughs> so 800 parsecs, that's how far away the Cone Nebula is. It's 800 mm-hmm. parsecs. Um and I thought we'd talk about this because obviously parsecs comes up in Star Wars quite a bit because of the Kessel Run and the fact that uh, uh, and they sort of use it as a, as a measurement of time when really it's a measurement of distance. Actually, it's distance. Yes, he says, pushing his national health glasses further up the bridge of his nose. <laughs> Talking about me, not you, Matt. It's in the uh, constant. Uh, the cone nebula is in the constellation of Monoceros. Which means mono one one singular 
and yeah. Saros. Uh, corn on the cob, <laughs> corn isn't Corn on the cob, yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> Monoceros is a unicorn in Greek. Oh, yeah, what? There Get we out go. of yeah, it. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. So, the cone nebula is in the constellation of the unicorn, Monoceros. Do you know what, Matt? Most people, when they hear the word unicorn, think it's just a bit... They probably think it's a bit silly, which, of course, it is. But do you know what it makes me think of? What? The greatest sci-fi film ever made, Blade Runner. What? Oh, so, yes, uh, yes, yes. Take, take that, Star Wars fans. Yeah, I said it. <laughs> oh, what? Yeah, I'm not, what I, I think most people would agree that... Blade Runner is a, is a work of genius. That's that's one thing it we is, can agree it? on. So we're back together again now, Jamie. We we're can, back together. We can... <laughs> oh, the universe is now at harmony again. It's complete. But I'm just, Matt, I th- let's talk about... The Parsec. Let's talk about... Well, I haven't finished oh. with my Parsec yet. I want what? to tell people what oh, it is. For... So a Parsec is the distance from the sun to an astronomical yeah. object that has a parallax angle of one arc second. So if there was a Who? star... So if there was a star yeah. that was exactly a parsec away, yeah. when the Earth was one side of the sun, it would move by one arc second in the night sky once the Earth got to the other side of the sun. How about that? Is it? Do you understand? That, that's how, that, I do. That's I mean, how, I, mean, that's I how don't parsec... know why you needed to explain it. Surely that's, that's everyone how, knew that. So that's how a parsec um, is defined. And of course, if you think about it, par comes from the parallax error bit and sec comes from the arc second, a parsec. That's cool, isn't well, it? Well, Matt, you know, we've all learned something today. Yes. I don't know what that is, but we've all learned something. You should have learned it a few months ago when we when when I when I quickly covered parsec on 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 the show then. But I just thought it was worth doing again. I like the parsec. I think it's a it's, it's a good it's a very very good measurement. A British person, it a British, very good. it was first mentioned by a British astronomer. Just so you know, I think actually talking of British Matt, yeah. we've got an exciting interview for this podcast. Yes, that we're gonna ca- we're just gonna casually drop it in because you know now that we're big time podcasters yeah we just drop this one getting in. someone on like our next guest is just you know it's just stand it's just what we do isn't it yeah so this week back in 1999 yeah. well in fact tomorrow i woke up this morning uh because i tweeted is this a blue is this a blues song yeah it's a blues song beginning i woke up this morning woke up this morning do, 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 do. and i tweeted to station commander do, do, scott do, do, kelly do, do. Because he I flew up, he flew up in uh, pretty much on uh, exactly ninety nine, wasn't it? Yeah, nineteen ninety nine. Um, he flew up. God, Prince was getting really excited at this time, wasn't he? Because he he must have gone. Ah, oh, yes, my song's going to be really big. And he's, he must have been at number Absolutely. one. So yeah, back yeah. in December nineteen ninety nine, there we were all waiting for the millennium. But I tell you, who wasn't waiting for the millennium was was Scott Kelly and uh, Michael Fole. And they were just about Michael to go Fowl. up on STS-103. And Station Absolutely. Commander Scott Kelly thanked me for reminding him this morning. <laughs> so that's, uh, <laughs> that, that was a pretty good uh, way to wake up. Cheers, Commander. Cheers, Commander Scott. And it was uh, my pleasure to, to remind you. And uh, yes, they were up doing the third servicing mission of the Hubble Space Telescope. So they spent, they spent not only Christmas, but the, but the new millennium in space. I like the way you said millennium then. Yeah, millennium falcon. <laughs> so, so, yeah. Let's just move on. So, Michael Fole. <laughs> so, we've got an interview with, well, our interview with Michael Fole. 
Absolutely. You, just casual. We'll just drop that in. So we'll just drop, drop them. But I want to talk about Apollo 8 before we go to Michael Fole. Let's do it. So Apollo 8 has got so many firsts. And we're just about to hit the um, anniversary, an anniversary, not quite the big one, because next year mm. it will be 50 years since Apollo 8. But this... 50 years. But today wow. it's, it, is 40, it is 49 years ago that yes. um, the second manned space flight of mm. the Apollo space program flew. And these are the firsts. It's the first manned spacecraft to leave Earth orbit... Tick. It's the first Christmas for humans in space. Tick. Frank Borman, uh, James Lovell, and mm. William Anders, Bill Anders, were the first people to see Earth as a whole planet. Tick, tick, tick. <laughs> uh, they were the first people to pass through the Van Allen belts, which we'll get onto in a, in a little bit. It's a controversial one. They, at that point, they were the fastest humans that had ever travelled. By quite a long way. They were the first people to enter the gravity well of another celestial body. They were the first people to orbit another celestial body. They were the first people to see the far side of the moon with their own eyes. They were the first people to take a picture and to see an Earth rise. And they were the first people to escape the gravity Which well. Which is one of my favourite pictures ever. Incredible. Was it flat, Matt? Was it flat when they took Yeah, yeah, the totally. Photo well, it's, or... it's, a, it's a disc, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah. A, it's a, it literally looks like a, a paper plate out there. In Tur- turtle flo- under it. Flo- floating in space. Um, <laughs> and it, they're the first people to re-enter the gravitational well of Earth after leaving the gravitational well of another a body. I mean, it's just that it, so many firsts. It's, it's actually insane, isn't it? What I like is that when you talk about it, it's, you know, it is mind blowing. But imagine, imagine doing it. Uh, it, it just, it just doesn't. Because you can't, uh, none of us can imagine it. Of course you can imagine it, but it, I, I just can't think what it would be like uh, do, do you know, to go to another world. Well, this is, this is kind of what it must have been like, because, uh, uh, Borman, James Lovell, and uh, uh, and Anders, they they didn't go to sleep at all. I, it was thirty two and a half hours into the flight before mm. James Lovell went went to sleep. <laughs> so yeah. that and and they were doing so much stuff. What's what's amazing is loads of when you read the transcript of of of, of what's happening on that on that space mission. Even though it takes them three days to get to the moon, they are absolutely frantically working behind the scenes like doing stuff calculating trajectories and everything you know it's it's unbelievably complicated i don't think they slept that well either did they no that well i mean, I, mean they, I don't think you would would you well there was um we could we could talk about um uh bill anders was actually pretty was pretty ill Oh, no, Frank Borman, mm. sorry, was pretty ill. Mm. So Frank Borman, he just started, he, he, he tried to go to sleep and then he just couldn't get to sleep because of the noise of the spacecraft and, and all the radio mm. chatter, et cetera, et cetera. So he, so he asked permission to have a sleeping pill. Then he had another one and then he got to sleep for a little bit but woke up and was vomiting everywhere and had oh, a no. bouts of diarrhoea, which left, I mean, this is grim, that left the spacecraft full of small globules of vomit and feces. Oh no! 
So that, that's not. So it's pretty. That's not. That's not like the <laughs> images of when they throw the M and M's around, is it? No. Well, well, it is a bit like oh. throwing a load of brown M and M's around, I suppose. Oh, brown no. and, and carrot coloured ones. Oh, oh man! No. Stop. So, so it must have been pretty grim. Now, at the time, sorry to anyone that's listening to this at lunchtime. So, I think they thought that at the time. I think they thought that it was uh, he. He must have had an adverse reaction to the sleeping pills. But nowadays, mm. mo- modern day researchers think that he was probably suffering from space adaptation syndrome or yeah. SAS. Uh, and SAS. and the reason why they hadn't suffered from it before in the old gemini capsules was because uh they couldn't really move around and moving around apparently increases the chances of of you getting this space adaptation syndrome so frank borman suffered from it really really bad badly and i I assume that you know as trained as you can be you still must be incredibly nervous and apprehensive that at any moment you could die I don't think they're nervous or apprehensive. I think, I think, I, no, I think that's one of the things that they train. I think when you listen to people like uh, Commander Hadfield and people like that, that is the part yeah. of their training that's really, really important. And, and it's one of the things that, of why they're chosen in the first place. These are people with mm. nerves of steel. And so that they, they you know, that, that they're trained to not get stressed or nervous about about death that they in in the back of their mind that just must be just purely a uh you know a working hazard rather than so. you know then I, I i think otherwise you just wouldn't be able to function there's just so much going on yeah so yeah that, it, it's pretty grim though so that yeah imagine having so little sleep and apparently that's this lack of sleep ended up being really quite dangerous during the mission because they started making loads and loads of mistakes uh when they were actually really? yeah in, when they were orbiting the moon they started not understanding instructions from from God. from the earth and started making mistakes and frank frank borman was asleep and kept waking up and hearing lovell making loads of mistakes and thinking oh no I've, i'm gonna have to get up now because because this is like this oh, is like no. yeah no, it's like a, oh, no it's like a nightmare so they they yeah, you know they took I it i mean making mistakes in a rocket is it's probably not the best place to do well it. yeah and what and one of the kind of scariest moments is the fact that um one of the sort of big moments would have been on Christmas Day as well. So, yeah, the uh, Christmas Day they had to do a, a a burn to get them out of lunar orbit and back to Earth, mm. uh, uh, and they would have been waiting to see if that burn had been successful on Christmas Day, and only found, finding out on Christmas Day if this would have been oh my word, this is a bit stressful. <laughs> All I want for Christmas is to be recaptured by Earth's orbit. Yeah. Sounds a bit weird, doesn't Earth's it? gravity. Uh. Stressful just listening about it. <laughs> it is it is pretty uh it is pretty stressful. Um yeah. Apollo 8 took three days to get to the moon. Yeah. And it orbited ten times over the course of twenty hours. And during mm-hmm. that, during those orbits, those twenty hours, they made their very famous Christmas Eve television broadcast absolutely amazing and i'm going to play a snippet of that because they read the first 10 verses from the book of genesis here we go let's play it in the beginning god created the heaven and the earth and the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep and the spirit of god moved upon the face of the waters and god said let there be light and there was light 
And God saw the light. Day was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. How cool is that? That is cool, isn't it? So I'll tell you who didn't find it cool. Oh. Madeline Murray O'Hare, founder of the American Atheists, responded by suing the U.S. government, (laughs) Uh, saying, well, it's violating the First Amendment, according to her. Uh, Do you know what, Matt? I've got to agree. Yeah. Space isn't a place for religion. Well, no, I agree. But uh, but having read their... Because... Uh, if you remember the quote I, I came in with right at the beginning of the show, it was literally up to them what they read, and they th- decided that Genesis um, were the best band on the planet at the time. No, that Genesis were... <laughs> uh, uh, Genesis were, was, um, was common to a lot of religions. Therefore, you know, the Jewish, the Islamic, and, and Christian religions would all recognise that as a kind of text and that's why they read mm. it they thought it was you know a bit more universal than just a religious text but i'm i'm with you actually jamie i think um it would have been nice to have like a message that was somehow all-encompassing of all humanity regardless absolutely because you know ultimately what you're doing is you're you're segregating people whereas i think if you just have a nice message then you're not you're in, you're including everybody well that's yeah. What I think. But, I mean, it's still pretty cool. And it's so cool. It's it, still cool because it's space chat. And, you know? Yeah, and and it's been used in a lot of uh, popular culture as well. You may have recognised it from Michael Jackson's song, History, from his album, Absolutely. History. You may have recognised <laughs> it from MGMT's song, Come On Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. And you may recognise it from the gloriously cool The Songs of Distant Earth by Mike Oldfield. That is so prog. Yeah, well, uh, the amount Every of prog episode. Uh, of there's the a amount, lot of prog chat, isn't there? Yeah, there, there is. Yeah, but there are so many prog. prog bands who've used that particular section as their, you know, really? going over their seven eight time section where they're going from different time signatures with some widdly diddly keyboard solo, and they have that in the background. It's a classic. Pretty amazing. Yeah, I'm, I might do one Pretty myself. Amazing. Hats off. And uh, yeah, and the United States Postal Service uh, brought out a stamp with the uh, Earthrise picture and a small s- little quote from the uh, from from that particular reading. There we go. Interesting. Very interesting indeed. So yeah, the, they they came back to Earth on December the twenty seventh. Uh, and it splashed down in the North Pacific Ocean, and they became 1968's Men of the Year in Time magazine. Matt, let me ask you, do you think that we will be Men of the Year in 2017 on Time magazine? I think we've missed out this time, because I think Trump's got it, according Have to we? him. According to Trump, he's Man of the Year, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, he'll definitely, he'll definitely, he'll definitely get it. He'll definitely yeah, get yeah. it. Uh, but uh, no, I think 2018 for our coverage of uh, yeah for our coverage of uh, Falcon Heavy. What are we going to wear? Well, I, I'll tell I'm you wearing what we my wear, I'm Matt. wearing my Big Bird outfit. We should. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should wear the Interplanetary Podcast T-shirt of, available from all good online merch stores. Uh, absolutely, that's exactly what I'm wearing on over the top of my Big Bird outfit. When I say available from. All. You mean what I mean is the website? Matt, can you post up the link yeah. to the only one that has it? Yeah, please? yeah, absolutely, 
Absolutely. Okay, Absolutely. Uh, I've, I'm, I'm going to talk about the orbital mechanics of this. I know it's going to bore you to tears oh. here. No, no, Jamie, this is really cool. This is really it cool. Be no, no. Because, you know. So, Apollo 8, it goes up into the up, up. It, when it goes up, it gets into a circular orbit around the Earth mm-hmm. at exactly 100 nautical miles high, right? Okay. Perigee and apogee. Roughly the same. Uh, Live together in perfect, perfect harmony. harmony. So, yes, at, at about, in fact, in Apollo 8, it was 99.57 nautical miles. But as the propellant vents out of the spacecraft, it added a few more miles on top, about six miles on top, just from the venting of the of, of uh, propellant. How cool is that? Matt, let me ask you this. Why is it nautical miles in space. Oh, do you know what? I don't know, Jamie. I think someone's going to... If I know our listeners... Someone will know why I Nautical think someone's Mars. Gonna, someone's going to let us know. So anyway, yeah, so it's in, this, it's in this parking orbit just to make sure that everything is all right. Now, this is, this is my favourite uh-huh. bit. You're going to like this bit. So um, then on. that's followed by translunar injection... TLI. Oh, yes. And that's done by the third stage of the Saturn V, which is the S4B or the SIVB. And that burns for 318 seconds and, it's, and, it, and it accelerates the uh, spacecraft to the moon at almost the escape velocity of Earth, right? So, so that, that is now flying off and it's going 25,500 feet a second or 7,800 metres per second, flying towards the moon now. Pretty quick. Now, you think, well, what happened to this third stage of the Saturn Saturn V. Well, I'll tell you what, it, it, once it's done its job, it flies off and then that is inserted into an orbit that then is in orbit around the sun. So, so that th- the third stage of the Saturn V, that one is in orbit around the sun now. Pretty much. How close pretty much does forever. it get to the sun? Um, well, I guess it's, it's, it's in a similar... I mean, do, how does it not burn up? No, it's orbiting round the sun. No, no, no. It's orbiting. It's close. orbiting round the sun, like like the Earth is. So it's about the same mm. distance out. It's somewhere in between the Moon and the Earth, but orbiting round at that distance. That is cool. Thinking that that's still going. Yeah, no, and it's and it will be there for 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 God knows like millions of years probably. Uh, and some of the some of the um, third stage of the Saturn Vs went into orbit round the Earth, but after Apollo thirteen. Uh, they decide they started crashing them into the moon so that they could take measure, seismic measurements. So they actually use the Saturn, uh, the oh, third stage really? of Saturn V, yeah, as as a as a way of uh, generating seismology experiments. How that is mad. How brilliant is that? So that yeah, is, just just Matt, you know what? I was skeptical. Yeah, but I really enjoyed that last two minutes. Yeah, see, I knew you would. I'm a bigger man than to just poo-poo it. I, I genuinely enjoyed yeah. it, and I want to say I'm sorry for doubting you, Matt. And not only that, when we talk about perigee and apogee, right? Yeah. Uh, when they get, when you get to the moon, when you go into orbit, it's no longer perigee and apogee. It's now periloon and apolloon. Yeah? Get no, out of here. no. So it went into an elliptical orbit around the moon, a 60 miles periloon, and 168 miles apolloon. 
Uh, how wow. cool is that? Uh, and then that was, that and then that gets cool. circularized by a few burns that the really stressful burns. Uh, but what's amazing is, and David Baker talked about this, uh, is about uh, mascons or mass concentrations. So these mascons are where Earth and indeed Mars are exceedingly uneven gravity-wise. So when you're in orbit around the Earth, but Earth is pretty even. So the, you know most. Uh, satellites don't get perturbed by anything um mm. but when you're um but when you're around the moon you go all over the p- place there's lots of perturbated motion and uh, and and you have perturbated to, uh, yeah so it, it, it's it's uh, so you have to continually adjust your orbit otherwise you would just drift hopelessly out of control very very quickly um because of this un- if there's going to be any arguments over christmas dinner matt when you're with the family yeah are you gonna? Are you gonna grab someone by the lapels, pull them into you, and tell them to adjust their orbit? Yeah. So, what was the furthest away Apollo Eight got? It got to two hundred thirty-four thousand miles away. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Sweet relief. That is that is some distance. Uh, so when the spacecraft came out from behind the moon for its fourth pass across the front, Borman saw the uh-huh. Earth emerging from the lunar horizon and then literally got very excited. Quick, quick, everyone, have a look. Uh, he'd managed to take a black and white photograph, so that's the first mm. one, but uh, Anders took Earthrise, which was later picked by Life magazine, as you correctly uh, pointed out earlier on, was picked out by Life magazine as one of its hundred photos of the century. It's just, it's just incredible. <laughs> now, here's another story that you're going to love about Apollo 8. You ready for this? Go on. So, <laughs> yeah. so there's James Lovell and he's, he's um, old Jim Lovell and he's, He's getting a bit mm. bored, so he's uh, spending some of his idle time uh, doing some navigational sightings, uh, manoeuvring the module right. to view various stars by using the computer uh-huh. keyboard. However, he accidentally erased some of the computer's memory, <laughs> oh, <laughs> which, which, made, which made the inertial measurement unit, the IMU, or IMU, to think that the module was in the same relative position as it had been before liftoff. This is very oh similar God. to how the... <laughs> this is very... That sounds really dangerous. Uh, yeah, so it then starts firing off its thrusters to try and collect, correct the module's attitude. But once the um, crew had realised what the hell was going on, it took level 10 minutes to figure out the right numbers, then using the thrusters to get the stars Regal and Sirius aligned, and another 15 minutes to enter the correct data into the computer. So basically... Uh, yes. So 16 months later, Lovell had to do the same manoeuvring on Apollo 13 when it all went wrong. And his joke was, my training on Apollo 8 came in handy. (laughs) And, Uh uh, but in the same book, he dismissed the incident as a planned experiment. Uh, but Mm. he has since acknowledged that the incident was indeed an accident caused by his mistake. Well, it's good that he's double backed. Yeah, you know. I mean, all of the crew thought that um, Apollo Eight had a fifty-fifty chance of success. So that whole idea of them being scared 
is yeah, mm. I mean, like you know, it it would have only wow. have taken very brave people. Yeah, I mean, imagine if if a burn had lasted slightly shorter than it was supposed to, they would have missed going into Earth into lunar orbit and just been flung into space forever. Yeah, that's nuts. Um, and 1968 in America was a pretty mo- well in the world was a pretty monumental year. There were so many horrible things going on with assassinations mm. and and political unrest that yes. um, one of the telegrams that uh, Borman received after the mission stated, "Thank you, Apollo Eight. You saved 1968." It really was. It's hard to it's hard to see now, but it probably was just such a moment of hope needed wasn't yeah, it such a moment of hope mm. for the for the whole world but there we go so do you know where the yeah, do you know absolutely. do you know where the apollo 8 is now where they keep it in osaka no it's not that's where it that's where it went in 1970 oh it's not there anymore it went to no it went to osaka in japan uh ah. for expo 70 uh but it no it's in the chicago museum of science and industry got it got it but for all for all the people in Britain who want to go and see a little bit of this history, mm. you can of course go to the science museum and see Bill Anders' spacesuit, which is on display there. Oh, and I, I, I think yeah, and I think it's next to Helen Sharman's spacesuit. So yeah, there we go. It's a uh, it's a pretty cool thing to go and, and check out. So when was the next time Christmas was celebrated in space? Uh, 1973? 1973. Aboard what? Uh, that would have been the, well, Skylab. Yes. Brilliant. You Literally, got it. You, you, you smashed am, it out of the park there. I am smashing this. Uh, and of course, now, of course, it's just a common occurrence on the International Space Station. Yeah, big time. Uh, I mean, it's not a big deal, is it? i tell you what, Matt. Um, thoughts are going up there to the new crew members about to have their first Christmas in orbit. Amazing. Yeah, and they all made it up there safely. They did. Which was my, my, with, and my new favourite astronaut, uh, Mr. Tingle. Mr. Tingle. <laughs> so, Matt, would you like, a, would you like a, a fact? Yeah, give me a fact. Give me a fact. In 2015, Michelin-starred chef Heston Blumenthal teamed up with UK Space Agency... Uh, ESA and NASA to design meals for British spaceman Tim Peake, which included his Christmas grub. Do you like Do you like a bit of Heston Blumenthal and his and his sardine ice cream and uh, things? I think it gets a bit silly because no one can do it. But I think that's the point of going to his restaurant. I'd love to go to his restaurant. I've heard that and- the fat duck is incredible. Um, but but when he does his, uh, you can make this at home. And it's like the perfect fish and chips that takes four days. Ridiculous. What are you doing? But he did... Uh, you know? a- um, Adam Buxton and his um, Moby song wouldn't mm. be as good without Heston Blumenthal in it. That's very true. Very true. Yeah. So shall we, uh, shall we listen to Fole? So we listen to Michael Fole? Let's do it. So I'm Mike Fole. Uh, I'm here in Nordwijk, the Netherlands. It's the first time for me. Uh, and amazingly, it's a sunny day... Uh, here in Nordwijk at the European um, Space Agency's STEC Center, uh, where I have learned that they uh, test already fabricated satellite satellites, and the, originally the astronauts, the ESA astronauts, uh, trained here. 
Well, it's amazing to speak to you. Thanks for giving us some time. Um, the first question is going to be a tough one. If you could go back and live one day again in your amazing career, which would it be? Well, I think probably I'd relive the uh, Hubble Space Telescope computer repair that I did with Claude Nicolier. Sure. Um, and that's because at the time I was so nervous and worried about breaking the Hubble Space Telescope during that job that uh, it kind of spoiled it for me. Right. <laughs> I bet. Did, did, did you get to the point where you were thinking, if I break the Hubble Space Telescope, this really is... <laughs> it was a very, yeah, I wouldn't have suicided, but it, it was very close to that. <laughs> it, so, it really was that grim. Yeah. So uh, your, your mere space station stay where you uh, rescued Mir, was that, is, is that not a personal highlight or...? Well, there was no one particular moment on Mir that was, you know, uh, do or die or... You know, well, there were a couple, yeah. but there weren't any moments that um, were dramatic in a sense for me. Uh, there were processes that, of working together with a, a Russian crew who I'd gotten fairly close to and coming up with solutions and trying to convince them of ideas I had and then having them properly critique them, um, in particular when we tried to uh, stop the rotation of the mirror after the collision and the loss of power. That period was a good period for me um, because I felt very empowered uh, by the Russians themselves, the crew, to let me make inputs, come up with suggestions. But it was, it was also a team effort and um, one of the most poignant memories from that, which I wouldn't relive because it wasn't that great, was when they left. Um, I was uh, staying on the Mir station and the new crew came up, uh, Anatoly Solovyov and Pavel Vinogradov. They had already arrived and they'd been there for four or five days. I was excited that I was going to do a spacewalk. I didn't know until Anatoly told me. Um, it shows how much the Russians tell you stuff. Um, uh, but at the same time, my, Ru my previous Russian crew, Vasily Tsiblev and uh, Alexander Lazutkin, were leaving. And I felt very, very sad to see them go. And uh, I realized just how special the time I'd had with them was. Not that I would relive it again, because I, I don't think Vasily really enjoyed it. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I, I bet he didn't. So we were talking to the others earlier about Elon's speech in Adelaide a couple of weeks ago. Um, now... Do you think we should be focusing on the moon right now, or do you think we should be solely focusing on Mars, or do you think there's room for them both at the moment? There's not room for, for in any sense, uh, in terms of money, mm. for, uh, for two programs. I don't think there's really room even for one at the moment, based right. on so little money. However, uh, I, what I am surprised at learning, in my experience, is that going to Mars is actually a lot harder than we first thought. Mm. So, to some extent, uh, a focus on the moon is just fine. Um, uh, we will get to Mars. And I'm not sure focusing on the moon will really slow us down going to Mars. Mm. I think this either-or decision is not realistic because the missions to the moon and Mars both involve sustainable operations, mm. ones which can be repeated uh, logistically over and over which was not the case for the uh, Apollo program, which was really, was a, you know, a kind of, we're not going to stay, we're going to, to plant the flag and come back. So I think uh, the development of technologies um, 
both the safe haven idea around the moon at the moment. Uh, it's just come up recently with um, Russia and uh, America making an agreement. Mm. And then uh, with interest of China and India, of course, um, Europe is interested, uh, East is interested in uh, going to the moon. I think uh, the person or the groups that make the landers to land on the moon, they will do it for their own reasons and they'll probably be more nationally p paid for. But the infrastructure of uh, the base, the transportation system, the Orion spacecraft, the service module that's being built by ESA, those systems, and the space launch system, which is this massive rocket based on the shuttle components in the US that will launch in a couple of years, those pieces are the key elements that take us not just to the moon, but to Mars eventually. When I say eventually, I think that's in you know, the 30s, 2030s or so. I mean, do you think in 100 years' time the moon is going to be a kind of gas station for getting to exoplanets? Do you think we're going to just be using it as a base to harvest fuel? No, I don't think so. Um, you know, you have to look at Antarctica as sort of an analogy, and I keep wondering, you know, why, where is, why aren't there more bases in Antarctica? Yeah. And there aren't because it's a difficult place to go to. It's got only limited specific economic uh, uh, returns. And I think we'll be in the same position with the moon. So I think there'll be lunar bases, but I don't think there'll be... Unless we discover some, uh, you know, diamond outcrop there or, you know, some fantastic metal outcrop that we, mm. we need, I don't think uh, that industry will be there. But I cannot see and do not know how um, uh, industrial fabrication in space is going to proceed. It may be an amazingly good economic opportunity. Mm. And if that happens, you know, the solar system's the limit. Uh, you know, we could have... Asteroids mined and, and exoplanets for sure being absolutely. Yeah, the asteroid mining thing for that particular scenario, I guess, is another stepping stone that could be seen as a stepping stone to Mars. Yeah, but I think what we're missing is this um, uh, replicative manufacturing. Mm. I mean, we're getting there with 3D printing and stuff, but we're not we're not there, and that has to go through some major changes in technology development before we can really you know set them off to go eat, eat the eat the asteroid to make the make the habitat yeah and, um, i'm certainly i'm sure that will happen but when it happens we just don't know it's mm. like when saying when when's going to be a you know yeah the um it, it'd be quite it's quite interesting i think that isa doesn't really get the um it just deserves really we've been we've been listening to a lot of ESA astronauts uh, in, in talking to them and uh, and all the amazing work that ESA does is there something that you would really like to say about ESA that, that kind of kind of really demonstrates how important they are to to the space sector to so to the space sector well that's the whole of yeah the, the, the whole of human space endeavor I suppose really well um, I've you know been working with ESA as a NASA astronaut um, since my first mission on STS-45 and their participation originally in the um, development of the Space Lab uh, habitable module that was the only large cargo bay mounted habitable module for many many for tens of years uh, was absolutely key to the utilization of the of the US space system the space shuttle and it was the it was the, in fact they were the precursors to building the ISS in that sense I, I think today's participation by ESA in the Orion program shows their intent, when I say they, you know, the country's intent, to uh, explore beyond, beyond the space station. What I hope, uh, out of ESA and NASA, 
and Russia is a commitment to not chuck away the space station in 2024, which is a tough thing to ask them to do mm. because they have these limited budgets and they do want to go beyond low Earth orbit. And so uh, I think there needs to be some massive entrepreneurial government initiative, um, loss leader type um, proposals and ideas chucked around right now so that we don't sink the space station into the ocean in 2024. It may be unmanned, it may be, I think it should be boosted, parts of it can be sunk, that's what the Russians call it, um, parts of it can be um, boosted up, uh, equipment can be deorbited, but I think the core pieces of, of the useful space station should not be deorbited in 2024, even if it means putting it into a radiation zone high up above the Earth at 600 kilometers or 800 kilometers. So that when we do have a, you know, a viable commercial market, or, and there's not a market, that's the trouble, there isn't a market beyond tourism. But when we have um, uh, more commercial transportation operators, Boeing, SpaceX, Blue Origin, yeah. and others, I don't know what the others are right now. Um, <laughs> when those three, it's pretty impressive we've got three. Yeah. That's true. Um, when those three are kind of you know, trying to get money out of space, um, maybe some consortium, some group will see a way of using the space station relic yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, as a commercial return. And that, that's what I hope happens. I think that's actually a very imminent and urgent um, project that needs to be created. It hasn't started at all right mm. now. No. Well, that kind of leads into the deep space gateway as well, isn't it? If, if you've got a, a deep space gateway that's essentially a space station that's orbiting the moon, you think, well, where is that? Where's those budgets going to come from? <laughs> and well, the deep space, um, there's a lot of political um, incentive to do the deep space gateway because it allows, to some extent, the continuation of uh, relationships that exist already between the countries. So Russia and America, they can, keep, they can just put a, um, a Russian-American core around the moon um, I mean, it could be Cislunar space it could be Lagrange point and it, but it could be a safe haven um, and if you invite Oops, oh, uh, the mic's just dropped off if Sorry. you invite uh, there we go if you invite China and uh, India or other countries that are interested that's all, all for the better as long as everyone agrees on the docking system yeah. uh, going beyond that I think the programs become quite national in their intent you know yeah. America's always going to be weird about making a lander at the government expense to land on the moon. I just, <laughs> they'll always try and get someone else to pay for it. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's very, yeah, it's very hard to convince the public for something that they did 50 years ago, I suppose. Correct, yeah, mm. and I, I think, yeah, I think we'll see yet another change. Yeah, I mean, it, has that been frustrating, the, 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 uh, the, the, fact that American space policy does seem to keep, they keep making announcements and they keep essentially kicking balls into the long grass, left, right and centre really. With the, with the, is, that, is that frustrating? Do you think that that's not been a great for space endeavour because, because we haven't had a strong lead from America? Well, um, I'll say that the, uh, I'm not surprised. Um, when I was 21 years old, I wrote out a little plan, and I thought I would be on the moon by the time, you know, lots of us do. Yeah. Um, I'd be on the moon by the time I was in my 30s, and I'd be on Mars by the time I was in my 40s, and I'm now 60. You know, so none of that happened. 
but you have to look at what changed in the world in that time frame. And, mm. you know, uh, enthusiastic as we are, those of us who um, believe in space exploration and humans uh, living on other, in other environments in space, nonetheless, there's a real world around us made up of these 7 billion people, and they have different goals and, uh, and they're competing ones. And so I've learned that the, the, way, the only way to see forward is where there's self-interest involved for large groups of people and uh, you know millions or hundreds of millions of people and so I think uh, th there has to be some kind of industrial return from space I think there has to be some kind of medical discovery or some kind of um, you know organ right. growth uh, industry going on in weightlessness that makes people really want to do it tourism isn't going to drive it enough simply because to go into orbit, I need a cubic meter, no, two cubic meters of, of gasoline, petrol, to get the energy to get me to the eight kilometers per yeah. second to be in orbit. Yeah. That's just not something anyone today can buy yeah. You know, yeah. on their own, right? Unless they're sponsored by by work. So I, I just think uh, we need the industry more than anything else. We need the you know that discovery that, and I think helium three is not it, by the way, right? Yeah. That's what you're thinking of. So, and water on the moon is not really it either because it's such a rarefied substance. Mm. Um, it's very hard to scar the moon with such a large amount of machinery to just to get that small amount of helium three. Yeah. So, uh, so I just think we need that uh, that that discovery, which hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened yet. Well, I'm not sure. I, I'm pretty sure it'll happen. I just don't yeah. know when it's going. We'll keep our fingers crossed for it to be shorter rather than later. Now, Michael, what's your favourite space fact? Do you know one that would blow our minds? No. No? <laughs> I don't believe you. No, no, no. No? Space fact out there. Well, cool. Matt, next question. <laughs> next question. Okay, so we've um, uh, we've just recently on the BBC they've played the uh, done a program called Astronauts, uh, which is basically people trying to become astronauts uh -huh. um, what advice would you have for people who do want to become astronauts and what piece of advice did you get growing up that kind of has stuck with you that really stood you in good stead to become an astronaut well I, I, I'm asked this very often and I talk to A-level students in particular very often about going into space maybe five six times a year with mission discovery and in those um, I'm, I, I've never changed the answer and that is do not change what you like doing just to become an astronaut by trying to guess <laughs> what's yeah. needed. Mm. Do only what you're good at as well as you can and then find the opportunity that uses that in space. And uh, So yeah, if you're a ballet dancer or a painter, I can see it's tough to imagine the path today getting to space. But you might be a really rich painter <laughs> or a very famous mm. ballet dancer mm. or something like that. <laughs> or, both. or both. Yeah. Yeah. So I just, but if you're an engineer or a pilot, yeah, you can see how it can happen. Or a geologist, you can see that's a bit more logical. But don't, don't switch horses just to become an astronaut, trying to guess what people would want. That doesn't work. Got it. Well, thank you so much for your time, and we hope you... Have a good rest of the day in sunny Thanks. Amsterdam. Yeah, yeah, sunny Amsterdam. Hope your uh, cold gets better. Thank it, you it very will. much. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean soon, rather than later. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. That was great. No, thanks, thanks very, very much. much. Appreciate yeah. it. There is so much to love about Michael Fole because he is 
Well, I mean, it's Britain's, you know, Britain's greatest astronaut, or, or the astronaut who is the greatest who was born in Britain, I should say. There was certainly a moment in there in that interview, wasn't there, Jamie? That that was yeah. that was odd. But he was ill. To be to be fair to him, he he was he he, he was he was feeling pretty ill. He had a really bad cold, like I do now. And we were mm. interviewing him out on a sunny, in a sunny day. Yes, out in Nordvich. Yeah, we felt we felt a little bit weird when he didn't want to give us a space fact. To be fair, we're running out of space facts. We are. Yeah, there's not many. No, there's not many. Yeah, there's not many. So you know, there's none according to Michael. Uh, <laughs> uh, we we should congratulate uh, space. We should congratulate SpaceX on their monumental success the other day of Absolutely. getting getting a used. Uh, Falcon and a used Dragon up into space and returning the Falcon 9 yet again. Incredible, incredible scenes. Launch, land, launch, land. That's pretty mm. cool, isn't it? It's a double. Return, return, return. Just awesome. And then, of course, the Dragon will return as well. It will. So, yeah. And we've just read, Matt, that he's going to be sending up um, some ingredients so that the crew can make some beer in time for Christmas. There's no way they're going to be able to make it in time yeah, for Christmas. Yeah, they're going to get it's, absolutely look, look. steaming on Christmas Day. <laughs> I, I, I think that that is the independent being a little bit naughty. Do you reckon? Because, well, that's, they'll get the barley seeds in time for Christmas. But there, uh, is, there is a difference between... And as we learnt, Matt, you can't have fizzy drinks on the space oh, station yeah. or yeah. in space because the bubbles don't float up. For you to yeah. release the gas. So it's Budweiser. Budweiser have sent 20 barley seeds on mm. that uh, SpaceX uh, launch. They want to and be the first brewer in, on, on Mars. On, on Mars, yeah. Well, that's just something they're just saying. Uh, I, and I don't want to diss anyone. No. But Budweiser is a terrible tasting beer. According no, to me, I'm just saying me. Sorry if, if anyone's no, no, J- by Jamie. That. I, 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 I actually quite like Budweiser. Do you? And 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 it's also it is the king of it is the king of beers, or else they wouldn't be able to print that on the bottle, would they? Yeah, I disagree. No, I'd it's say, not. A, say it's more, look, look, I'd it's, say it's more like the court jester. Well, I think it's you know, growing up in in England, it is hard to sort of really love lager in general isn't it really and i think i disagree that, you I, I, th- I think you're hanging out in the wrong pubs uh, i i just you've got to come drinking with me matt i just don't think you grew up with banks's mild the nectar of the gods <laughs> <laughs> i didn't no, no so so again i used to drink terrible lager, but every i think every 15 year old 16 year old no 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 no, no no in birmingham we we drink proper ales from 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 the from the from the age of six upwards, I used to have a paper round map yep. that gave me two pounds a week, um, and you know I did it one 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 day a week on a Saturday morning. I got two pound, and that two pound went to um, towards me buying two bottles of Foster's Ice, that was my drink for Saturday night when I was fifteen. Yeah, that that. What do you think about that? I think that's awful. <laughs> Oh. I think you had irresponsible parents, and <laughs> <laughs> they didn't know. Oh, what? Sorry if you're just finding out, Mum. Oh, wow! 
You, you are yeah. badness. I'm going to get grounded, aren't I? Yeah, we, we just used to go to the pub. First thing that we ever used to do, of course, is, is drink cider. That was that was the a classic, wasn't it? Ouch. Anyway, that, yeah. that, that's, that's regardless. This Christmas, of it's course. Neither here hey, nor there. Hey, this Christmas, the, yeah. they will have the joy of watching Star Wars on the uh, uh the last jedi on the international space station for christmas that's their christmas treat and it will be a treat jamie wait, no matter what wait, you say what's weird matt is you said joy yes I'm, and i meant it it's so weird because you what oh, i think you meant to say was living hell oh oh before before you go uh oh, go george and i did a quick kerbal video of space rider on a vega rocket that's worth checking out if you if you get the chance. This is George, your son, yeah. who's the uh, the the lovely voice that you hear at the beginning, the beginning of every podcast. It's quite a funny video. We uh, we have a, quite a bit of banter. In chuck up the link. I've done it, Matt. I've told you about saying banter. We're not, I'm banning you from saying okay. that. No, no, bants. You're banning me from saying bants. No, bants. <laughs> you're not allowed to say bant banter. You're not allowed to say lads. Nice. This is this is all getting banned. I, I, I tell you, where's a good source of of words that mean banter or chat is the song "Elephant Talk" by King Crimson. <laughs> I might go and listen to it straight away after this podcast. Well, it's got Adrian Ballou, a uh, collaborator of David Bowie and uh, Brian oh, Eno, one of my favourite guitarists ever. That's what all you indie kids say, and you don't know anything about him. I hate you. What do you know, Matt? You know nothing. It's like <laughs> we're just How not. Dare we're gonna, you? Have, Jamie. We, we've fallen out on this episode. It's been absolutely we horrific. Have, we? we're re- I'm really sorry. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry everyone. We'll, but don't worry. We'll have a brilliant Christmas, and we'll come back all refreshed for our new year. Exactly for our will. roundup of the year. It's going to be a big year. Happy Christmas, everyone. Happy Christmas. Don't eat too much. I'm just kidding. Go for Go it. Go for it. And um, and we'll see you. Well, we'll we'll probably. See you in 2018. No, we'll see you before 2018. We got we're... even before then. I'm getting ahead of myself. Yeah, we've got our round roundup of the year special. In the new year, we'll Big be time. doing our what's to look forward to in the year special. Yeah, we will. Yeah, we will. Excellent. All right, guys, you know the drill: like, subscribe, five stars, pigs in blankets. Get it done. Awesome. Happy Christmas, everyone. Merry Christmas. Bye bye.